you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. My name is Janine Garner. I am the host of this podcast and it's an absolute joy to welcome you today. Um, This Unleashing Brilliance podcast was started a couple of years ago and the reason I launched it was really based around this passion of personal reflection and how that helps us understand our own journeys to our own uh, level of brilliance. And I do believe that when we share these stories, that's how so many of us can learn things about ourselves and potentially it might unlock opportunity for each other. This podcast is all about exploring how individuals find their point of difference and their passion, you know, what drives them and how they identify their superpowers. And it's a real pleasure to have on my show today, um, Mark Wales. Now, I have to have, I have to admit, gosh, I can't even speak today. I have to admit that when Mark agreed to be on this show, I did have a little bit of a fangirl moment. And on top of that, my kids um, believed that suddenly I was super cool because Mark Wales um, is actually a popular contestant from the Australian Survivor show. Um, so we watched him week in, week out as he competed in Australian Survivor for that wonderful role of uh, the ultimate survivor from the show. Unfortunately, he didn't make it to the end. But what he did do is meet uh, Samantha Gash, who is now his fiance. And together they have a two-year-old little boy called Harry. So it's wonderful to chat to Mark. Now, Mark is more than just a contestant on Australian Survivor. He is actually a special ops veteran. He's a CEO of his own business, he's an entrepreneur, and he speaks around the world. He had a 16-year career with the Australian military and a six-year career with the Australian Special Forces, and that career has taken him to the most remote places around the world. As a troop commander, he was in charge of 30 elite soldiers, and his role was to lead combat missions deep behind enemy lines. At the end of his career, he'd completed 10 tours of duty to places like Afghanistan, Iraq, East Timor, Lebanon, and the Solomon Islands. His successful recovery and growth uh, when he left uh, the Australian Special Forces led him to embark on a high-profile career in business. He studied with the Wharton School of Business before joining uh, the elite consultancy firm McKinsey & Company in New York City. And Mark was actually listed in Wharton's prestigious 40 Under 40 Awards for Business Excellence. He's also the passionate owner of a tough luxury e-commerce brand called Kill Capture. And as I said, he now works as a corporate speaker, training thousands of people around the world. In this episode, we talked about his dream of joining the SAS, where that started, and his determination to actually achieve uh, that accolade of being at the top of his field 
in his industry in terms of defense. Uh, he shares his journey through combat and also, more importantly, his rebuild journey of um, how he uh, chose to end up leaving the military and uh, what he subsequently did and the learnings through rebuilding himself on a whole new career journey. So please enjoy this latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance with the fabulous Mark Wales. Mark, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, good to meet you again. I have to say, my kids think I am the coolest mom ever because uh, they followed your journey on Survivor when you were a guest or a participant in that. So they just think I'm the coolest mom ever. So we will have to talk about that at some point. But before we do, (laughs) Mark, um, let's get right back to the beginning. Your career, as I uh, shared in your uh, introduction, is varied and very different. But where did it all start? If you go back to being a kid, where did it all start, this this dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yeah, for me, it, it all started when I was in high school. And I was pretty lucky because I saw something as a young person that I really wanted to turn to a life goal. So I was in grade nine, I was probably about 13 years old. And I remember seeing uh, images from the Princess Gate siege in London, which happened in 1980. And it was a Basically, terrorist siege, a bunch of people were taken hostage in the streets of London and out come these men that were called the SAS to rescue all the hostages. So all these guys kind of clad in black ended up going in and conducting a full rescue mission to rescue all these hostages. And I, I remember looking at the photos thinking, God, that just looks like the most amazing thing ever to kind of be able to help people in their, in their darkest moment and be a force for good. And so I thought, oh, I want to join that unit. How do I do it? And I asked my friend, I'm like, he was an army head. He's, I'm like, how do I join this unit? He goes, you have to go through the army. Um, then you have to do the selection course. It's really hard. Not many people get in. And um, that's where the idea came from. I thought, well, I better go join the army and I'll go do this course. And it kind of took me 11 years from that moment to then get on the selection course. And that was the start of my career in, in special forces. So 11 years, what what kept you going? What what was it about a job in the Defence Force in the Australian military that, that kept you going? I think it was, it was one of those weird desires that always just circles back to you. And no matter how much you try and think about something else or do something else, for me it, it always came back to that being in the military and joining that unit that would be, able to do the toughest jobs and the best jobs and kind of the most exotic ones. So I think you got to listen to things when they keep coming up like that in, in your um, conscious uh, consciousness. And I, I had that happen to me a lot when I was a kid. I'm like, I've got to go and do this. So eventually I started taking the small steps that you can take on any journey and, and just started applying to military academies uh, because I knew unless I could succeed in that, I, I wasn't going to get into the SAS. So I applied for our Defence Academy in Australia called uh, the Australian Defence Force Academy and I left high school. I got, you know, okay grades, not great grades, but left high school, went through that academy for three years and then I went through Duntroon, which is an officer training school for a year and that got me my start in the Army and I just, I wanted it so much. I just kept kept it in the back of my mind no matter how much 
bad stuff or uh, punishment we were taking in the military, I was happy to do it because I knew it was kind of the next stepping stone to get in. Yeah. And that comment of I wanted it so much, what, what is it? What was it that you wanted? Uh, I wanted to get into a unit that was really exclusive, really hard to get into. You can't buy your way into that place. Like it doesn't matter what you've achieved in life. You can only earn a spot in that unit. And for me, that was just it was such an appealing thing. So I thought the army would be good. But to be part of an elite part of the military would be even better. And I think that's just what kept me heading towards it. Um, I really wanted to do, I guess, kind of push myself and, and see how far I could take it. And you were in the Special Forces for six years, was it? Yeah, yeah. I joined, I did the selection course in 2004 and I left there at the end of 2010. So I'm imagining you went to some quite challenging places as troop commander. I think I read in your bio you were in charge of 30 elite soldiers. So not only were you part of that super elite group, you were leading a group of super elite people. What what does that take? Like what what is it like working with and leading a team of elite individuals into combat? What did it require of you? Yeah, it's, it's a, that's a really good question because when you get to the unit, you're generally younger and less experienced than a lot of the soldiers that are there. So you really can't uh, come in there and be a directive kind of commander too much. You really got to come in with an open mind, accept that you don't know a lot about the job at this point and be a real student. Um, and learn as much as you can. And, and basically, I was always going to solicit advice from the experienced guys in my team. And I think they respected being heard and being listened to. And then when the time comes and you do have to make choices because you're in charge, then kind of do that unapologetically and accept. In my case, I had to accept I wasn't always going to get it right. But as long as you're kind of deciding and executing and learning, um, that's the trajectory you want to be on. You want to be willing to, to make, take a chance, make those mistakes and just keep learning. So, yeah, I found it to be really, it was quite intimidating because they were very senior guys, very um, good at their job and I was coming as a newbie. So I just had to accept that I wasn't the, the top of the tree and just do a lot of learning and then when the time called for it, just make, make the decisions. And how did you, what sort of things, can you, looking back, and you talked there about it being intimidating in those early days, but looking back, have you got any examples of some of the things that you did um, to almost become, because you can graduate and become part of this elite force, but you've still got to be accepted become part of that team. Can you think of some examples of, of things that you had to do or when you talked about learning along the way that you can share? Yeah, I think one of the ones I remember is um, I had to give the orders for a, a squadron-level attack on a on an aircraft. So we do, we do this in training. It was like an aircraft recovery, um, hostage recovery mission. And I had to lead the 
the presentation that was the kind of the planning and the orders for the for the attack. And I was doing this my first week in the squadron. There was about you know, sixty or seventy guys that were going to be in the assault, and they were all watching me and judging how I was going to be this new guy coming in to give these orders. And I remember doing the orders, realizing there was a bit at stake here because it's kind of the, the first impression of a new person and they're going to decide whether you're worth following or not. And, um, you know, I gave it a, a decent set of orders and the attack turned out to be good enough. So it was, a, it was a good kind of start, I guess, to the career there. But it was, I always felt like I was uncomfortable, always doing things beyond kind of what I thought I could do. I, I guess because of that, the growth trajectory in a place like that is really steep and I found being comfortable in a, in a steep learning trajectory kind of held me in good stead after I left when I was at McKinsey and, and other corporations that treat people in the same way and expect you to, to act quick and learn quickly. You said something really um, I just want to pick up on there. You said decide whether you are worth following or not, Yeah, um, which is quite interesting concept versus you're the leader it's positional power there's something very subtle about that decision about whether you're a leader worth following or not what what creates the difference yeah I think there's always that tension between formal authority and I guess earned authority where people actually want to follow you and in my experience once I got to those really high-end units where you're dealing with adult professionals they will only really follow you if they if they respect you and they realize you have their interests at hand and you're going to really put the needs of the group and and the mission i guess before your own needs um and i think the way to someone mentioned this to me a little while ago that you're actually dealing with professional volunteers whether you're in a business or the military like these people don't have to be there with you they have other choices so You've got to remember that when you lead people to, I guess, treat everyone as adults and and be respectful in that sense. And I, I, I used to find if I did that, it was reciprocated. If I micromanage people, then it's not reciprocated. You actually end up getting bad results because people just don't want to work. So 10 tours of duty, including places like Afghanistan and East Timor and Lebanon, is there one particular moment um, that you that sits with you in terms of the moment where you go, I have learned more about myself in this one singular moment or more about other people that you're able to share? Yeah, I think it's, there's a pretty obvious one for me. It was, would have been the first time I was in combat, um, and that was 2007. So by now I've been in the military, uh, you know, 13 plus years and I was leading my troop on a clearance mission in a, in a valley in Afghanistan and we'd been there about four weeks already. It was kind of heading into winter, which is not really the fighting season in Afghanistan. Things kind of quieten down there. And we were going to clear this valley. There was about a 80 or 100 Taliban in this place called the Trura Valley. And I kind of led my – we knew there were enemy in there. I led my guys in. It was about – eight kilometers behind enemy territory roughly and we did all this at night and when the sun came up in the morning this clearance force landed they were uh, British Gurkhas and they started the clearance of the valley and I was there with my team and we were going to move to an ambush location not too far away and on the way to that ambush location in the early morning 
we got into a really severe battle, um, kind of on the edge of a cornfield. And it was the opening battle of the day. Uh, there was a number of enemy near us. There were uh, British attack helicopters overhead kind of firing in front of us for support. And there were snipers on the hill next to us firing in front of us to help us and, and stop us from getting cut off. And I just remember in the opening moments of that battle thinking, oh, God, this is serious. I'm really not prepared for this. And to make matters worse, uh, one of my um, team leaders was shot and badly wounded at the start of that battle. So we're not even 10 minutes into the battle and already I'm kind of thinking, my God, it's my first time in combat and this is not going well. And, I mean, I've told this story a few times. I, I, I do talk about it when I do a keynote, but we're essentially in that valley for about 12 hours and the whole time we were trying to figure out how to get out. Um, we're in a really busy space. It was very tough, very intense, and it kind of tested everything everything about, uh, I guess, me as a person, kind of my emotional limits, uh, my professional limits. And the thing that made it hard is that guy that was shot in the early stages of that battle um, died. He was by the time he was flying back to base, he was um, he was dead. So it was such a big shock. It was such a big shock, and I just think that for me it was this kind of before and after moment in my life. And I think from that point on, I knew I wasn't going to be the same as a person, but I also took a lot from that experience as much as it took from me as well and from my team. So, yeah, it was a, it was a bloody tough day and that I always look back at, at that as being, I guess, a seminal moment for me in my career and in my life. So you talked about a before and after moment. What was what was the afters? Um, as in what was it like yeah, after? How did it, how did it yeah, how did it change you? So um, you talked about it as one of those almost watershed moment and how there was mark before and mark after what what did you learn about yourself after or how did it change you after yeah i think i i think some of the immediate things were we kind of understood now actually we're not bulletproof we are mortal beings and this this kind of could be taken from us pretty quickly um so it just made me think oh we're we're kind of lucky to have what we have. It gave me that kind of perspective. Um, emotionally, I don't think in the early part of it we were able to deal with it completely. Like we had a job to do. We're still trying to do it. Even in the weeks after, we're still trying to do more work. So you don't have time to fully process that. And I knew in the future I would kind of have to pay that that bill, so to speak. And by the time I got home, I found myself, I was thinking about it constantly. I had I, this, these kind of incidents that happened in Afghanistan. I would think about it a lot. And they ended up dominating my kind of waking hours, which is not what you want. So it just took a lot of time to, I guess, process it and rebuild from it and, and try and find some meaning in it. So you you talk a lot about that transition of um, leaving the special forces, and then suddenly you almost had to build another life. Um, you mentioned off air about 
learning to rebuild yourself. Can you expand a little bit more on that for the people listening in? Because I don't think we fully, unless you've been through what you've been through, we don't necessarily fully appreciate the significance of the transition from special forces to essentially civvy street right everyday life yeah um, so what did that what did that mean for you uh it's it was a really big decision to put aside a career i'd fought so long and hard for and fought so long and hard to get a good position in that unit and also in the army um after that first tour of combat i went back and did three more tours after that so we really sunk a lot of work, just everything, emo- you know, emotional, everything. We put a lot of work into that place. I didn't have any real relationships while I was doing it. It was just too much of a of a commitment to that, to fighting, to to really have a full, um, you know, family and relationship back home. So you give up a lot to live that life. And I think at the end of it, deciding to move away from it's a pretty big call because I'm kind of walking off into a void. I don't really know anyone. I don't really, you don't, I didn't fully align with the values of people day to day. And also I didn't uh, feel understood. I think people don't fully grasp what um, our soldiers have been up to overseas. And that, that was hard for me. Yeah, it took a lot of time to kind of find something uh, that I believed in after that. Mm. What, what did make you leave out of curiosity? So I, what made me leave was when I thought back about why I joined, it was to go to the SAS to lead a troop and to go into combat. And by the time I'd been there six years, I'd well and truly done that. And I was looking kind of down the road at what my career would look like. And I just felt like the best days were probably behind me. Like I don't think I'll ever do anything as, as good as that or as meaningful as being in a war and, and leading guys. And so that was kind of one part of it. I thought maybe I can switch and do something really good. I've still got time to do that. And the other part was I thought if I keep doing, if I go through this a second time, I don't think I'll come out of it completely normal. I think I'll have permanent damage done to me. If I go to another war somewhere else, um, the cost could be too high. So I thought it might be better to go and see if I can start again somewhere else. So... You had built a career in something that you had dreamed of building since you were a child. I think you said grade nine. Um, to then making that tough decision to evolve into somebody, almost Mark version two. How how did you work out what was next for you? Um, I had been reading a book on my last tour in Afghanistan um, called Head uh, of the Curve. It was called Head of the Curve and it was about uh, guys kind of transition through Harvard Business School, the NBA. And I remember I'd always had this affinity with the US. When I was a kid, I wanted to go and play American football there. I don't think my parents took me seriously, but um, I wanted to go over and play football. And I still kind of had that in the back of my mind. I thought, God, if I could go to school in the US, that would just be so exciting because over there they love university and they make such a big deal of it. So... Um, I decided to, and the other thing I was thinking is if I can go into business, having gone through one of these top schools, it'll, it'll make for a great transition. So I looked around at business schools. Um, I settled on applying to three 
which was Harvard, um, Stanford on the West Coast and the Wharton School of Business in Philadelphia. And I just had to, I guess, train myself in the standardized tests they use to accept students. And that was about a year's worth of study. And then I had to do all the applications. And I was doing all this in secret because I didn't want anyone in the military to know just because I thought it would affect mm. my career. Um, and then within within two years, I'd, I'd applied for and been accepted to the Wharton School of Business. So that was it. I was going to pack up and, and head overseas for a two-year full-time MBA in the US, and that's what I did. There's an incredible consistency runs through both those stories of having a goal and then the preparedness, because there's so many people that have a goal and it, it becomes it just stays a dream or they give up half halfway through. But what I'm hearing you share is you get these goals of things you want to achieve and then you've done the research and then there's an absolute preparedness and intentionality around doing the right steps to get you one step forward. Yeah. Um, is that something that you you see as part of achieving success or in the context of this this podcast the you know how you unleash your brilliance that it does take work it does take effort um that you have to push yourself to your own frontier of competence and maybe even past it to get to where you want to go yeah i think for me the the things i saw that worked first time around that worked second time around were there was probably a handful it was like the first one is, can you see what that end goal is? Is it really exciting? Is it really something you want to be a part of? Does it really kind of fire your nerves? And if the answer is yes to all that and you keep thinking about it, then you probably should start steering towards it in some way. Um, and that was the case for me with both of those kind of goals. And then the second part is, if you have that goal, then what are the kind of tactical steps to get there? Because there are a series of steps and gates and obstacles you can kind of negotiate um, to get there. And it might be, you know, one a year or one every six months. But if you sit there and think about it, you can kind of see what the steps are if you really think about it. And I think if you're willing to put the work in, it can be achievable. And I think the final part is once you kind of see that end goal and you see the the milestones or the steps to get there, um, how do you just keep persisting? Even, even when there's setbacks, which there will be, and I think the main thing is just to really persevere and not be too dismayed when you get things wrong. Um, and that happened to me all the time. I did all sorts of stupid shit in the military that just made me think, oh, maybe I'm not suitable to do this. But instead of worrying too much, I, I just kept kept going at it and let them decide. I'm like, let's just get there, get to selection, and let them decide if you're suitable or not. Don't um, don't give up. What's what's the biggest failure? that you're willing to share and allowed to share oh. <laughs> that you went, oh, my God, I learned so much from that. Oh, there's some good ones. Um, on my, when I was training, when I was training at Duntra, we were meant to be proficient in, like, you know, uh, platoon attacks, and these are like the bread and butter, you know, uh, manoeuvres that a, a team leader in the Army is supposed to be able to do. I led one platoon attack in the field in the military, and I ended up attacking my own fire support position which means, yeah, which means I attacked my own team uh, in the middle of the bush and it was such a disaster. The, the instructor said to me at the end, he goes, you need to think about a career change. Um, <laughs> and I was, everyone knew about it. The whole like 150 cadets, everyone knew that Mark had attacked his own team and it was just the most embarrassing thing uh, to be a laughing stock for a while. But 
you know, I think I think you got to realize you do sometimes make mistakes in the heat of the moment, and if you're willing to learn from it, um, you never make the same bloody mistake again. And I tried not to. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no, I can just imagine the teasing that went on. So uh, after business school, you joined McKinsey. Yeah. Uh, and then now you have, you, you've, you're building your own brand. You're building your own business in terms of a brand called Kill Capture. Why, why did you go and start doing that after, you know, SAS, McKinsey, and now building your own brand and all the challenges that come with that? Yeah, I think after coming back from Afghanistan, I kind of always wanted to tell the story of what we've been up to and what it was like to be in that environment with that type of team. And I thought about different ways of doing it. And eventually I kind of realized, my God, I can do this with a a brand of some sort. Because with a brand, you've got all sorts of mediums you can use to communicate or or storytell. You've got Mm -hmm. video and products and imagery. And there's so many different ways you can tell our story with a brand. And I think that's kind of where I started. We don't call it Kill Capture. It's, um, you know, it's a tough name. It's a polarizing name, but it's, it's kind of meant to be. And from that, we're going to tell a, the story about the values of, of these high-end teams. We're going to talk a bit about what we believe in and what we got up to overseas and why with those values we still believe in today and we, we still apply in our own brand. Because I think... And when it comes to apparel and retail, a lot of brands tend to center around maybe materialism or status or luxury, all those things. Whereas I thought, no, I kind of want one that is about functionality and purpose and looking after a team and pursuing a mission. And that's kind of where it came from. And we just, I started with a jacket. Uh, I built a prototype in the garment district in New York City. Uh, I've never done that before. I had no idea how to do it. We just kind of made it up. And took it out in the school fashion show, and, and we've just kind of I've kind of been building it incrementally ever since. And I'm just it's just a long term project. I've really enjoyed it. And looking back, at, you know your experience so far. What what are the skills that you are taking into your work now? So yes, you run a business or a brand. You're also a, a speaker, a corporate speaker, and you train thousands of people around the world. Um, what, what are you teaching? What are you, what are you bringing to the world now on the back of all your experience? Um, the keynote talking I kind of fell into because Samantha, my wife, is a, is a really good corporate speaker. She got, got me started with a couple of small jobs and I was nervous about it. You know, as you know, it's a hard thing to do and it's a hard thing to get wrong at the start. It can be a bit embarrassing, but I started doing the presentation. I would basically tell her, a distilled version of what we've talked about today and just say, I was a basic kid. I kind of pursued this goal. I managed to get in this unit. I experienced something that changed me forever. And this is what I've kind of done with it. And this is what I still apply today. And, and therefore, these are some things that maybe you can apply that will help you either in just life in general or, or in your job. And I think people just appreciate it a slightly different perspective from a different field or a different function um, altogether. So I, I enjoy telling people the story and I think people take things away from it. And one of the main things I say is you're going you're gonna to get this stuff wrong all the time. You're gonna, if you set a big goal and you try and execute towards it, you're going to fail all the time. And that's totally fine. Just um, learn from it, pick yourself up, keep going, and uh, you'll get there in the end. 
What does the term unleashing brilliance mean to you, Mark? I think for me it's it means putting yourself, uh, pointing yourself in the direction that you know you should be heading in rather than one that you think you should be heading in because of other factors, maybe society or other pressures have pointed you down a path that maybe you thought was good but, and when you look at it now, maybe it's not so good. And I think reorientating yourself to a, a goal you really believe in or something that excites you, you know, that's probably the best direction to go in because it may not bear fruit immediately but I think in the long term you'll be better off and the world will be better off if you, if you do chase that goal. And from your perspective, if, you know, you could share with our listeners, I don't know, your top top three tips, what, what are the critical three things that you've learned that have um, helped you both evolve your career over, over your t- time so far but also, you know, unlock your brilliance to do what you're doing? I, yeah, it's a good one. I think the top one, and, and everything should start with this, but it's understanding what that big goal is that you want to achieve because that's really a foundation. If you don't quite get that right or it's different, everything else you build under that or beside that or based on that is not going to be fully aligned with you. So it's kind of the, I I guess the analogy for it is effectiveness versus efficiency. I think it was some management guru said there's nothing no bigger waste of time than to do something efficiently which shouldn't be done at all. So just think about what that goal is and that's the big thing you need to move towards, um, get that part right, whatever it is. And then uh, what would it be second? I think that a big one I've learned is there's so much just noise in the world. There's so much that's trivial that you can do and the key thing is to ignore a lot of that and just – choose a couple of things that you think are important, maybe one or two or three things that you know are really vital and just do those, like kind of ignore the rest. You can really go down rabbit holes with email, all, all sorts of non-essential tasks you can do every day, just try and avoid those. And I think the final one would just be, um, it sounds really basic and I repeat a lot, but just perseverance, like just the willingness to keep going so often I think oh, that's worth more than talent and intellect and ability. Like just if you hang in there and don't give up, I think you can really go a long way. Someone was sharing with me, um, I don't know if you've read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit. Um, yeah. And the equations out of that of talent, I was actually sharing this with my 11-year-old around sport, but talent plus effort gives skill or equals skill, but skill plus effort equals results. Yes. And that's almost what you're talking about in terms of that persistence and there's the willingness to get back up again and keep moving forward is, is critical. Yeah. And it, like, so I can't – yeah, go. I was Sorry. going to say, and like, and like she, she pointed out, it's not the only ingredient in that formula, but it is one of the most critical, I think. Um, yeah, what a great, what a great book. Mm, it's a good one. Now, I, I can't, there's no way I can finish this interview without talking to you about your time on Survivor. Um, I fully admit it is the only reality TV show I watch, and I am a total addict. And um, I did watch your, I did watch your series. So in 2017, you were on the show. Now, first of all, um, why did you apply 
to go on Australian Survivor after being, you know, t- 10 tours of duty in the Special Forces. Uh, you were listed as Water- in Wharton's prestigious 40 under 40, and then you chose to go on Australian Survivor. What was it that intrigued you? Yeah, I think of all the uh, weird risks I've taken with my life, that was kind of one of the big ones because I just had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I think I, I did it probably more out of desperation than anything else. I was, I'd been in New York for a couple of years by then uh, in a consulting role. I'd spent you know two years in, in Philadelphia doing my MBA and it was in the middle of winter in New York and I just realised like, and I had a breakup with the girlfriend I had at the time and I was really dejected and I just thought I've come all this way and I still, I've, I've been in exile really in, in the US for nearly four years and I just don't know what I'm doing. And I thought, and I saw this um, ad for a TV show after I'd heard my mate talking about the American one. I thought, oh, maybe I'll just give that a little go. Not thinking I'd actually get in. One thing led to another. I found myself uh, flying back to Australia for, for an audition and um, I got in, I decided to go in and we flew to Samoa and I just had no idea what I was getting myself into having had no experience with TV. And on day one, I remember sitting on the barge in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It was the first day on the actual set of Survivor and uh, I'm standing next to a short, fit, attractive girl called Samantha and she ended up being my future wife. <laughs> so it was, it was yeah, we quite were. <laughs> Again, chatting off off air, and uh, there's nothing I'm sure more nerve wracking than your entire love life being played out on national TV. But at least it was in Survivor. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you reckon Survivor was your downfall within Survivor? Is that why you? Where, how far did you get? I can't remember. Oh, we got about uh, three weeks in. I was like seven, seven yeah. or eight episodes. So it was like a third, nearly nearly halfway. We nearly got halfway. Not terrible. You did well. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> no, you did well. It was such good fun. You did well. What, <laughs> what did you learn about that experience? Um, I learned that there's so many kind of exciting fields you can get involved in in the world, and I think I, I, I was afraid of going to those fields because of my old profession and the values mm. that are attached to that. Like, you know, don't put yourself in the spotlight. Don't do anything stupid. Don't act like a fool. And I think when I kind of ignored that and, and did Survivor and did the exact opposite of all those things, it, I kind of realised it's not that bad. Like you can co- go and do something that's really good fun and and it just ended up changing my life in, in such a good way. So, yeah, I totally I thought it was the best fun ever. <laughs> Who, um, just as we start wrapping up, if you, you know, you've had so many experiences, um, I have no doubt that there are, a shed load of people that have been part of your life and your world. Who, looking back, was the most influential person or one of the most influential people that you can that you remember vividly? And what was it about them that has contributed to you becoming who you are? I think um, it would definitely be my parents, especially my mother. She died when I was in my early 20s, so she was quite young. She was 50 at the time and got cancer. But really, they both my parents kind of took me through adulthood before I joined the military. And 
she'd grown up on a farm in West Australia and just said to us boys, like, you have to be good to people, take care of people, um, be good to your friends. Like, just those little things they, they constantly remind you of in life that I think when you're so impressionable, you, you cling to for the rest of your life. And I think that steered me uh, in the in the best direction possible. And, um, yeah, I've, I've never forgotten that. And if we could magically get her on this podcast right now, what would you say to her? I'd say you're the best and um, we miss you every day and thanks <laughs> for everything you did for me. Mm. Mark, it's been an absolute joy just hearing your uh, humility really in terms of how you share your story and just the the consistent theme of that that persistence and that determination to um, ultimately with every choice you make unleash your brilliance and become the best that you can be and you know we're often asked what's next you know what's the next big thing but I'm more curious about you know who who do you want to be remembered as I think um, I really wanted to share the experiences that I had. Um, overseas and fighting, even though they're difficult to share sometimes. Um, my grandfather was a World War II veteran, and I don't know much about what he did, even though he was in the South Pacific fighting, um, you know, the Axis at the time. I really wish I had a, uh, you know, a book or a recording or whatever it is from him. So I'll be doing the same thing. I'll just be sharing my stories, and, and that's kind of what I want to be, I guess, remembered for and, and being a good dad for my little boy, Harry. And you're you are busy penning your story right now, aren't you? When's um, is there anything you can share with our listeners about the next book or when the next book's due to come or when the first book's due to come out with this story? Yeah, I, um, I've been waiting a long time to kind of write about it. Haven't really had a chance. Probably won't get a better time than right now to do this sort of work. So I'll be writing it through to I guess June or July this year, and then I release the book in the second half of of uh, 2021 of next year do you have a title yet or is it a work in progress i actually don't i came up with a title and, <laughs> and the publisher laughed at me so um i think they're going to change it <laughs> i call i wanted to call it ivy wars and he's like no no that's a terrible idea so yeah we'll come up with something else well, I will absolutely share all the details uh, through my world. If people want to find out more about you or how you can help them or follow you, what's the best way to find you, Mark? Um, probably through a website. It's markwales.com.au. And, yeah, all my links are there. And, um, yeah, I'm excited to see all, all your new releases and, and all your material you're producing this year. It's going to be awesome. Uh, there's nothing more challenging than launching new material in a world where we can't meet each other. <laughs> yeah. I this one every day, Mark, that's for sure. Yeah. It's going to change it's, everything. Isn't it? It's going to change everything. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I know people are going to love listening to this episode. Thanks so much for letting me uh, dig around in those memory banks and uh, for being so open to sharing some of your story. Um, there's some great lessons in there and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, no, thanks for having me and I'm really excited by, by what you're doing too. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.